GreatBigOwl.com Hello and welcome to the latest Needle Mythology podcast. Needle Mythology Brought to you in association with myself, Pete Perfides and Flair Audio, whose unique patented technological know-how is responsible for a range of peerlessly great earphones, ear protectors, and also the revolutionary recyclable modular loudspeaker system Zero. This is a first for us because we're about to meet a non-musician for the first time. So, our guest today is a journalist and presenter best known for the scrutiny under which she places her subjects on Newsnight, which she's now into, I believe, her 28th year of fronting. Uh, She also hosted Newsnight Review between 2002 and 2014. It's, I can't believe I'm about to say this, it's just, it's not just politicians that she can grill exquisitely. Her culinary skills propelled her to second place. (laughs) (laughs) Celebrity Masterchef, narrowly losing out to Phil Vickery. Um, She's a superb storyteller. Her most recent novel, The House by the Lock, used Loch Dune in air as the dramatic backdrop against which three generations of one family attempt to come to terms with the discovery of an awful secret. I suspect she does a lot of her writing in transit between the BBC in London and her house in Glasgow. Maybe she'll tell us in a minute. Another thing I've noticed about her is that you can barely get through the end of an interview with her in which she doesn't mention some album she's obsessed with or a band she and her family danced to in their kitchen or a memory of a record bought as a child which has forever stayed with her, all of which piqued my interest enough to see if she might spare an hour of her time so that I might find out a bit more about the way music has soundtracked her life. You probably worked it out by now, but the person sitting opposite me is Kirsty Walk. Hello, Kirsty. Hello, I am very well. Thank you for making the time, because you do seem to be perpetually busy. Well, it's only an illusion, really. Is that how you like it? Um, Sometimes I don't like it like that. Sometimes I really like to be doing very, very little, except maybe a bit of reading and a bit of cooking. Mm. My son, uh, James, calls me a shut-in sometimes, and it's true. On Sunday, I didn't leave the house. A shut-in? I don't think I know. Is that sort of a, a Scottish term? or? Well, I don't know. I was one of James made it up, or it's a kind of, sort of quasi-religious <laughs> term for nuns who are in the wall. I don't know. I think staying in is just so underrated. I love it. The best thing to do is really to have a lot of loud music on when you're cooking. That is my favourite, and that's my go-to. What's your cooking soundtrack? Actually, Teenage Fan Club's a good soundtrack for my cooking, Grand Prix. Grand Prix, yeah, right. Okay, that's... uh, Yeah, I can see that completely. Are you going to go for the top line or the harmony? It would be the harmony. Really? I'm I'm an alto, I'm a contralto, I'm really down there. I don't actually sing with people very often. Do you not? <laughs> <laughs> but when you're sort of when you got uh, music on in the car, because I oh yeah, I mean that's a, you know, th- there's a thing that uh, that James and I do, which is particularly on the island of Arran, we go over what's called the string, and it's a road between Brodick and Blackwater Foot that's majestic, and it goes down, up, and down, up. You look for some deer. If it's mm. misty, when you go up high, sometimes the hills are actually obscured. Then you dip down into the valley, you go over some little bridges and straight down to the coast. It's tremendous. And what we often do is 
set the iPhone up and then actually just play Neil Young Cinnamon Girl all the way between Brodig <laughs> and, and that is just it's just fantastic Caitlin, my wife and I once a few times actually we've sort of done the drive up through Inverness to Wallapool. Yeah. And we've often found that on an overcast day, then we tend to go for dramatic post-punk, early U2 maybe, or maybe even early Simple Minds. That seems That's to work. That's right. Well, well, I mean, you, you're in the right territory for Simple Minds because you're in Scotland. That reminds me. Didn't you have a part to play in the very first Simple Minds video? It was a film for the BBC that I was making, the nightly programme, but the Simple Minds become pretty big pretty quickly. And they were shooting, I think they were shooting their first video on the Renfrew Ferry across the Clyde, which doesn't exist anymore. And I shot them there and I shot them at the Barrowland Ballroom. Which, of course, as you know, is one of the best places to see music in the world. It is. It's the sprung floor, it's amazing. Who have you seen there? Fine Young Cannibals, um, obviously Simple Minds. Uh, did I see Franz? I think I might have seen Franz Ferdinand there. Mm. But when I was seeing a lot of live music years and years ago, I would see it every week in Edinburgh because Edinburgh was a really big music scene um, for live music in the late 70s. And there was this kind of dance hall down in Stockbridge at, um, in St. Stephen Street where you could see everybody from Cheap Trick to Joe Jackson to Elvis Costello, The Pretenders... What you saw with these people? All these, every Thursday was oh, a night word. where you could see live music. And the year before, when I'd been at Stirling University, I had a hugely uh, busy music scene. So there was everybody from God Man to um, John Martin. Wow, okay. To Vinegar Joe. Vinegar Joe, I think, have had a little bit of a reappraisal in recent years. Really? Because, and partly because of that, the, the footage that often gets shown on BBC Four of them from, I think, the old Grey Whistle Test. And you look at Elpicky Brooks and you think, that, that what a phenomenal sort of blues singer. Because, she was a great blues singer. You know, that's the first Elkie Brooks song I heard, which was Paul's a Singer. Hmm. It's only years later that I realised that was Libram Stoller wrote that yeah. for her. Paul's a singer She stands up when she plays the piano In a nightclub it almost feels like we've gone backwards slightly because there's just a woman completely sort of owning it mm-hmm. in a manner that, you know, doesn't... You just don't quite see so much anymore. And it was in 1972. Exactly, yes. That must have been a great time to be at university because presumably you would have at least had some of your education paid for. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, funnily enough, yeah, um, in, in Scotland now, of course, it's, uh, you also get your tuition uh, paid. But then I was a minimum grant because you know we were you know well off, mm. and I can remember my check for thirteen pounds used to arrive in the post every week for my father. I was very lucky. And then I went to Edinburgh the next year. I, I did well at Stirling, and I went back. I was very keen to go to Edinburgh, and I did. And actually, the music scene in Edinburgh was absolutely fantastic then. Who were you going to see? Who were you listening to at this point? 
Well, listening, I was listening to it and seeing Roxy music, uh, particularly. Um, I was a real big Roxy music fan. But you hate it. You mentioned to me earlier on that you hated prog rock. Genesis, really? And I mean, you know, I had, I think I actually had a King Crimson album, but um, it was just not my scene. It was just seemed to be terribly self-important. Is that why Gavin Esler had to leave Newsnight? <laughs> why does he like prog rock? Did you, you must know that. That's... Oh, God. <laughs> I love a Gavin. What was he thinking? <laughs> that's the, the thing that everyone knows about Gavin Esler. Well, I, honestly, sort of... I must have put out my mind in horror. <laughs> Nineteen sort of sixty six, sixty seven, when you were, would have been around twelve or thirteen, seems to have been a big year for you. The music wasn't that when you, the Kinks, you got into, didn't you? And yeah. then there was Revolver, which would have been a bit earlier. Revolver was earlier, and that was because um, my um, mother's elder sister and her husband and kids stayed in the same house as my grandfather and just cooked for him and things. He was still working, but they went away a fortnight every year, and they went abroad. We never went abroad. They went abroad, but they had their albums, LPs in their room, the boys, my cousins. I remember going in, getting that record out very carefully, putting it on the HMV player so it was never going to get scratched and listening over and over. I mean, Andrew Bird Can Sing is still one of my favourite Beatles tracks. I just think it's the most wonderful track. And it was so wonderful listening to it. I didn't have that album at all. In fact, I don't even think I had a single album then. It's pure joy, that song, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, it's just... Uh... You know, for them to be sounding so joyful, you know, a good few years into their collective life yeah. at that point. Uh, that was just a terrific tune. And your early sort of musical memories before that sort of go back to... I mean, I guess they would be the same for a lot of us, just sort of overhearing music that might be coming from another room that your parents are playing late at night. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly... Um, I can remember an incident where um, I was in bed. Come on, everybody! Clap your hands! Oh, you're looking good! And I heard um, what I presumably had heard on the radio at some point, but I heard it in the house, and that was Chubby Checkers, that's twisting And I can remember going in the front room and there was this horror as I went in and there was these kind of gyrating bo- bodies and being sent very quickly back to bed. But at that time I can remember um, listening to Radio Caroline, um, which was pirate radio. Yeah. Um, we used to get that, the Ayrshire Coast, you used to be able to pick that up. And obviously Radio Luxembourg as well. I can remember being also in Arasig 
with my parents. They didn't have a car then. I also got the train up to Arasig, hiked into a caravan, a promontory, and then friends from Galloway came to visit us. And I was in a tent with this girl uh, listening, and we twiddled in, and we got Speedy Gonzales. And I, I, that is one of my first musical memories. Pat Boone. Pat Boone. Mm, Speedy Gonzales. Why don't you come home? Hey, Rosita, come quick. Down at the cantina, they're giving green stamps with tequila. And Arisag, just to put me geographically in the picture, where, where is Arisag? Arisag and Morar are up on the northwest coast. Oh, wow. Far up to Gal. And if you look right out from Arisag, you see different islands. And, of course, then you can be near, you can be very near shooting across the sky. Wow, a beautiful, absolutely beautiful part of the world. Do you not? You travel up quite a bit to Scotland, no? Yeah, we sort of, uh, especially when um, before we had children, Catelyn and I used to sort of go on these epic, sort of spontaneous driving holidays up to. Um, we always used to aim for Olapool, but sometimes we would go beyond Olapool. Did you uh, go to the Cayley Place in Olapool? We did, yes. Did you know about the Cayley well, Place? was a very good arts place because it was it was owned by an actor. Was it now? Yes. Okay, right. That's. That was certainly a very important kind of fixture in Ullapool in terms of the kind of whole ambience of the yeah, place. Yeah, completely. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those places because you'd sort of descend in towards the bay mm. after having driven through this wonderful scenery. And it's suddenly... What it reminds me of, actually, is the Waterboys song, This Is The Sea. Yeah. Do you know... Yeah, I, I know that song. Because... Um, when it ends, you know, you got all this this tumultuous, dramatic yeah. sort of uh, Mike Scott doing just what he does so brilliantly, almost like a tirade, and it just sort of ends calmly, and you just behold the sea. That was a river. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. A lot of your tastes that you describe in the sort of the late sixties as you're coming of age are, are, are sort of tastes that I would imagine that at sort of grammar school, sort of someone maybe slightly straining for something more sophisticated might have. Well, gone, uh, by gone then for. I was at a girls' school uh, in Ayr, <clears throat> and the, you know everybody used to carry their albums to school under their arms. You know whether it was Incredible String Band or, or Leonard Cohen or whatever it was. You know yeah. that that that's what you, people used to go around doing. I mean, I never carried, frankly, the Lord of the Rings under my arm because I could just never get to grips with that book. It was only the Hobbit I ever read. But I suppose music was what we, and we had a great music teacher who, Mrs. Ball was her name, who would say, "Bring in things that you like and tell me about them." And we'd all bring our own music in. 
Really? Which oh. I really liked, you know, it, and she would sit and I listen know, to I Leonard Cohen and she was like, you know, she she wasn't necessarily very young, but she was very open to it and she actually said, you know, I want to hear what you you guys, you know, you girls are listening to. And that was great. And there was a record player. Yeah, there was a the, record player. Amazing. Wow. Fantastic. You would remember a teacher like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, you uh, do. The, the, I mean, there is there is always the one teacher who is slightly different and actually you know, you hear it all the time about people saying that there was one teacher that made a difference. Mm. You know. You mentioned James, James yes, being your son. Yeah, he's 27, and he, he, both he and Caitlin are really into music. Caitlin, not Catelyn, like your wife. She's called Caitlin. Yeah. And they're both big, and so is my husband, but they're really into music, and so therefore I get a lot of things from them, which is great. It's great when they get to an age where it, the tra- it becomes two-way traffic. Absolutely. And what have they What have they turned you on to? Um, Arcade Fire, who I hadn't really listened to much of, and um, there's a great indie singer called Alex Winston, Right, yes. Who is a former, well, she was trained as an opera singer. She hasn't done much for a while, uh, but she is in Brooklyn. And funny enough, James went to a gig of hers um, about 18 months, two years ago, and then they all went back to her flat, which I think is just such a thing that you wouldn't imagine happening these days, but you would imagine happening in the kind of 80s and 90s. <laughs> yeah, it's surreal, isn't it? I mean, I can't, I can't imagine going back to, say, Edwin Collins' flat, you know, in the, in the 80s. After <laughs> it. But uh, much as I try to and fantasise about it, <laughs> very lucky you know because I was sort of uh, I'm now in a job where occasionally you know the 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 lines between hero worship and friendship start to get a bit blurred well I mean that that was certainly the case with um Natalie Merchant who I know okay and how how did that happen then well that happened a very long time ago um and actually the lovely Matthew Rankin from Nonesuch Records Hmm. um had contacted me and said he wanted me to meet her and it was before she was thinking of doing I can remember because I knew the Maniacs as songs, but I didn't know her, obviously. And I think it was when she was thinking of doing Leave Your Sleep, which was the wonderful um, album that she made setting uh, nursery rhymes and uh, right, yes, poems yes. to music. Anyway, we just seemed to hit it off and we became friendly and I visited her a couple of times in the States and, you know, been to music in the States. And she, you know, I've been to Barge. She actually was performing with some of the second year um, music students at Bard. And, and then Edinburgh, I've seen her in Edinburgh and seen her upstate New York. So, I mean, I think she's just a prodigious talent and I love her, both her songwriting and her melodies. I think they're phenomenal. She's a very underrated lyricist as well. Oh, she's a great lyricist. I mean, she's a, I, mean, I, I use this term advisedly and, and sparingly, but she's a, she's a poet, really. She is a poet. A completely. Top of the phone to the town Everyone stops when you come around They hold their breath for you 
And you mentioned uh, a couple of songs. You mentioned uh, Golden Boy and Jealousy uh, from two albums, Motherland and Tiger Lily. I mean, Golden Boy, I, I just think, is a phenomenal song. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the circumstances in which you... Well, I, I listen to that and I think, um, what is what is she saying there? She's saying that there is somebody that is actually always regarded as being be- the better person, but actually someone that's incredibly flawed. Yeah. Uh, and I think if music is relatable, you know, you can have a pop song, it can still be relatable. I'm not saying this is that song, but just something in a song hmm. will actually touch you. And I think, you know, Golden Boy, Pick of the Crop, uh, it's a very evocative song of family. Cut your teeth, cut your mouth, cut it out. Funnily enough, though this has actually got nothing to do with Natalie, and it only occurred to me quite recently when I think back to an album by Dory Previn, actually, Mythical Mm. Kings and Iguanas, that she was a poet. There was no doubt about Mm. that. And I think there's the same poetic um, sensibility in these two women. I mean, the actual song, Mythical Kings and Iguanas, is just such a... It's such a heartbreaking song in a way. But I think that whole album is heartbreaking. I yeah. think I, I, I think that... I don't want ever to think that she was a victim. And I think a lot of the, the lyrics about things that have happened to her in her life, she is reflecting on with a degree of sadness but knowingness as well. And I think there's a particular track which is about her breakup with Andre Previn and he... Uh, has taken up with Mia Farrow and it's called Lemon Haired Ladies and it is just the most heartbreaking track in the album. If showing affection embarrasses you I will not depend and I will not pursue For you are younger than I younger than I younger than I and I am I mean, just for people to, to fill in for people who might be listening but don't know too much about her, her background. You, you, just to qualify what you're saying, people not thinking about her being a victim. Um, so her background: her, her father was very psychologically uh, troubled, and there were a couple of sort of incidents which you know, no, no, you would want no human being no. just to go through. And then uh, to the famous, she married Andre Previn and famous... And looked after him and was very much, I yeah. think, played second fiddle. Sorry, sorry about the pun, but played second fiddle. Yeah. And then he sort of abruptly left her for Mia Farrow. And there's that incredible song, Beware of Young Girls. Yeah. Which, <laughs> I mean, the first time I heard it, I, I never... I always try not to just immediately think everything I listen to is autobiography. But when it gets to that kind of middle eight bit where it... <laughs> She just details almost journalistically what happened. Then you think, okay, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, this is this is the, this is the thing. It did happen. She was my friend, my friend, my friend. 
I thought her motives were sincere, oh yes, I did. Ah, but this lass it came to pass had a dark and different plan. She admired my own sweet man, she admired my own sweet man. We were friends, oh yes, we were. And she just took him from my life, oh yes, she did. So young and vain she brought me pain, but I'm wise enough to say she will leave him one thoughtless day. She'll just leave him and go away. Oh yes. It goes without saying. Um, obviously, there should be as as many female voices as male voices. But I think one thing we miss out on sorely when there aren't is just these inc- incredible depictions of the faults of men. Yes, I might be wrong about this, but I think in so many cases, the complexities of relationships, perhaps it's because I'm a woman, I, I hear them much more in female music. Though, of course, you know, when you think about Van Morrison and so forth, there's obviously a great complexity there too. But I don't know. I, it's this old, age-old argument um, about separating the art from the artist. Yeah. And, and I think that is sometimes tricky. It's like, you know, I love Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture, but he was a shit, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Van Morrison's gone through a, a number of phases. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, to put it that way. Yeah, but, but I do love his music so much. And I think Cypress Avenue, to me, makes me cry every time I hear it. Like yourself, I've been through phases where I wish Van Morrison was a better person. But, ac- <laughs> but actually, I also... Maybe it's more normal. Maybe, sorry. More normal not to be perfect. Yeah, and also, <laughs> at least you can be grateful to him for the fact that he's, oh. he can actually separate, he yeah. can actually present you with this version of himself yes. that doesn't, isn't dependent on what he's like as no. a person. No, and is a bigger thing, and yeah. you can take from your music, his music, what you will. Well, I'm caught one more time Up on Cypress Avenue One more time Up on Cypress Avenue And I'm conquered in a car seat Nothing that I can do I wanted to ask you also about, you sent a bunch a list of songs earlier on for us to sort of ponder. And uh, there's a song that I sort of overlooked prior to you mentioning it. I'm annoyed with myself for having done that. It's by Texas with Paul Buchanan oh. from Blue Nile and Sleep from the album Red Book. I think that is probably one of my favourite all-time songs because I think Paul Buchanan's, go, you know, really, mm. you know, that's Blue Nile or Long, you know. But Charlene Spitieri again, she has a brilliant voice. And you know, sometimes I think Texas doesn't get the credit for which it yeah, well, deserves. I, I agree. Because uh, that song for me does it. This is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's genuinely not meant to be. If there was a non-pejorative word for the phrase sell out, then I think it would be very useful. Because I remember when Texas first came mm-hmm. along, and they're presented as a sort of very sort of authentic blues-based enterprise. And I thought, well, fair enough, but I didn't find them terribly interesting at that point. My ears really pricked up when they started trying to write 
just really catchy sort of pop bangers. Yeah. And I thought, boy, you're so much better at that than you were the other stuff where you've tried to be a bit more sort of real. And then they started kind of like, you know, um, In a Smile and uh, Summer Sun. This kind of procession of perfect pop songs. But it's perfect pop. Yeah. This, I don't know how, I just, I mean, I'd like, I must ask her actually, I know how this duet came about. Let me Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. All of television history is contained in the Box of Delights. I've climbed up Nelson's column once before. These are small. And put it down in front of Backpuss. I'm Julia Rayside. Join me and my guests as we dip into our favourite TV memories. Suppose mustn't hesitate bashing head like this. You can't tell me what to do. You ain't my mother. I love it when a plan comes together. Come and tell us what yours are too. We've all been told we can't discuss nominations. It's a bit of car air. Shut up. With a novel on the top. I think I like you, Lovejoy. Find us on Twitter at Box. Delights Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Great big owl. David Bowie, yeah, I think as with, with probably everyone, especially of your generation, yeah. is a sort of mark in the sand almost for you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I can remember being at a disco in Aviemore when I was working as a waitress there when I was 17, the summer I was 17, uh, going to discos and listening well, sorry, to Sorry, where, where were you waitressing? I was waitressing in a hotel that actually burned down called the Red McGregor Hotel. And then I waitressed in the North, what was called the North British Hotel. And I can remember being on the breakfast shift at the hotel in the outskirts of Edinburgh. And my uh, friend Marion and I were on the breakfast shift. And Paul and Linda McCartney were staying. And Marion got to take their tray up to their room. <laughs> Very jealous. Was there, a, was there a conversation that preceded that about who would, who would do it? Or? No, I, I think I just gave way. Kidding. I think she was ordered to do it by the, the, the real waitresses, the ones that worked, you know, 40 mm. hours a week for the regular money, and that wasn't just for your student holiday money. Have you met him since? I have, actually. I met him at the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition Show uh, a couple of years ago. Very nice. I mean, I, I really only want to talk to them about their time in Kintyre because I think mm. that was hugely important for them as a family and those photographs are absolutely marvellous. And I think it also, it seems still to matter to 
the daughters as well that they they were there and obviously to James too but that that was a really important time in their life where do you stand on Mother of Kintyre the song not my favourite not my favourite but um, doesn't matter no of course I, I adore it, I've got to That's say. great. I, where I love it is where the pipes come in. Oh, That's yeah. where I'm just, I just burst into tears all well, the time. Well, yeah. Is that, <laughs> is that a thing that bagpipes are just... Yeah. Is that what they're there oh, for? Oh, my God, absolutely. I, I, I hear bagpipes, <laughs> I cry. I'm just actually programmed to cry. David Bowie. Yeah. So Hunky Dory is that your go-to? Yeah, and also um, later stuff as well. I mean, I, I mean, you know, Jean Genie is a perfect dancing song as well, yeah. you know. But I love the album cover of Hunky Dory. I just love this picture on it. Your parenting style does that, and Kooks does Cooks. that. Was there any? Did you take anything from that? Yeah, I mean, I think what was really lovely that song was just about be, you know, we'll make you happy. We, you know, we'll be happy with you. Do whatever you have to do. It was a very laissez fair attitude to parenting, which is probably David Bowie's attitude to parenting. Was it? Is it? Was it your attitude to your parenting? Um, mm, probably not. But actually, maybe <laughs> no. Now, I mean, I, they, yeah. Sometimes I think the kids parent me. Right. Okay. And if you ever have to go to the school, remember how they messed up. Don't pick fights with the bullies or the cats Cause I'm not much cop at punching other people's dads And if the homework brings you down Then we'll throw it on the fire and take the car downtown Just going back to, just going back to uh, kids for a while I mean, I have, to, I have to go on record And say that I am not anything like the Kate Bush fan that my son is obsessed by Kate Bush. If I go and see him in his apartment in Brooklyn with all his friends, they're playing Kate Bush all the time. They adore her, and I think that's fantastic. They're just talking about musical influences. That came out of nowhere. Because it's not didn't come out of me, but they just love her, and I think that's fantastic. What do you think it is that sort of may have sort of slightly eluded you that hasn't them in this instance? I didn't listen to very much of her music, as truth. Yeah. Uh, because I wasn't a Heathcliff fan, so therefore I didn't really. I think sometimes when you're, you know, you're, you've got a lot of music going on, and it's also what your peers are listening to as well. If you're not all listening to that stuff, then you don't get into it, and you don't drill into it. Yeah. So I didn't, whereas they do entirely. But I think Kate Bush is so serious about her work. That is what I really admire about her. Yeah. But someone who isn't ethereal, who you're a big fan of, is Kirsty McColl. Ah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> what, can you, where did you... The boy you, where did down your, the chip shop. I mean, I, yeah, was that the one? I, that was the one. Uh, and also Fairytale of New York. And also, because she, she just, again, she... It was a life cut short so tragically, trying to you know, save her boy. I mean, it, there is no worse story, really. It's just... Yeah, no worse story. Horrible. Um, 
Don't you have a, a, a Bella Freud top that says Fairy Tale of New York? It comes it? out every Christmas. I know it's not really a Christmas song. It comes out all the time. I love it. It's one of my favourite. I think Bella Freud is a brilliant designer. I'm afraid I'm... This is Bella Freud. It's actually a man's small sweater. For people who can't see, which is it's obviously anyone listening to this, it's a, it's a sort of black woolen sweater with a gold. wonderful golden stripe going down the arm, which is not un Bowie like in its own in its, it's own, own glam rock way. Yes, it is. A slightly kind of elegant nod to glam rock in yeah. your attire today. So, Kirsty McCall, it's actually the eye for detail. It's anchored in things that sort of matter in a way. And she. But, I mean, there's, there's a guy who works down the chip shop thinks he's Elvis. I mean, it could be any chip shop. And mm. it could be somebody who actually, you know, thinks he can do the music, thinks he can do the look. I think that's great. Oh, yeah. Literally could have been my dad, you know. <laughs> He, they had a chip shop and he had hair like Elvis so I thought that song was hilarious when it came maybe it out. was written for your dad um, <laughs> oh if you'd met him you'd do it <laughs> You try and sort of keep up to date as much as is humanly possible. There's an artist you were telling me about called Yola. Is that how you say it? Yola. Um, and thank you for turning me on to her because I, I hadn't heard her. If you if you kind of um, mix Dusty Springfield, uh, Diana Ross, I mean, all you know, there's a fantastic mix in there. It was Dan Auerbach who produced that, and I'm Big Black Keys as well. So uh, Dan Auerbach did the most amazing job, but it's her voice mm. and the way that she um, can move from different styles as well because she's a really experienced backing singer. Do you know what? I can't even pick a song from it that I think is the best song. Well, shall I pick one then? Yeah. Because I, I got imme- I've got instantly <sighs> obsessed with Far Away Look when you sent me the link to the album. And uh, I just thought, you know, it's... It's so amazing when someone can just put together something that sounds like it's just existed forever. Forever. And in fact, she played in Glasgow. I couldn't go. I was devastated. I couldn't go. I really... But so it's one to watch because um, it's her first album. You lit the candles on the cake And threw the match down on the floor Wish I knew what you were And so these days, you—I think this is kind of something that's kind of relatively well known about you. You still live in Glasgow, mm-hmm. in the West End of Glasgow, which is the, the kind leafy of West End of Glasgow, as it's called. Popular amongst uh, indie bands, uh, sort of you yeah. know, some of the, I people see, like you know, Bell and Sebastian. In fact, they actually were in the church choir near me. Not that I was in the church choir, but yeah. Bell, Bell and Sebastian were quite church choir. Um, I, think, I think Stuart lives around there. Yep. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people about the Bluebells, Bobby Bluebell still around there. Have you heard his current band? No. Fat Cops? No. He's, uh, he, it's, they're great. They're a sort of a kind of, they're a sort of garage rock outfit. And I think there are a couple of political journalists in the ranks. I must actually go and hear them. What's his? Why they play in Glasgow? Uh, occasionally in Glasgow, yeah. Fat yeah. Cops? Yes. 
I'll get it. I'll get him to send you a link, shall I? Or I'll send you a link. It's funny. I interviewed him. I was interviewing Bobby Gillespie because he must have been in. He must have um, been releasing Primal Screams, kind of. Well, this is your recent interview with greatest Bobby Gillespie. Or greatest or greatest or greatest or greatest hits. This is your infamous recent interview yes. with Bobby Gillespie. Yes. Well, that yes, exactly. Which is following on from the infamous Pete Doherty twice, second time. <laughs> <laughs> even more problematic than the first weirdly enough it was I don't I'm not sure if you passed comment but I did notice I think Emily your colleague Emily Maitlist saying that she was a little bit heartbroken about that Bobby Gillespie interview how did you feel about it at the time well it's difficult because I mean you know they're they're another great pop band and I thought I just think what was he doing really I mean what does he think does he think that that's I mean, he obviously passionately believes that he's right. It's what you're there to do, you know, to tease out the consistencies w- in someone's outlook. And what what we saw there was this sort of rather misogynistic double standard. Uh, you know, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds have played in Israel, have played in Tel Aviv. Would he have called them prostitutes? Really? That's No. Eurovision Song Contest in Tel Aviv. Oh, yeah. Madonna's going to play. Well, Madonna to... will do anything for money. You know, she's a total prostitute, and there's not. I'm not nothing against prostitutes, but I think you know um, the whole thing is set up to just you know um, it's set up to normalise the you know the state of Israel and the, you know and its disgraceful treatment of the Palestinian people. So here's the question to you then. Yeah. On the question of separating the art from the artist. Yeah. Oh, what do I think? Yeah, I mean... No, no, I'm, I'm, you know what, I... You know, probably for about three weeks I wouldn't have been able to listen. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have wanted particularly to listen to Primal Screen. But I'm under no illusions, you know. if I, they're, they're one of those bands who... There's about half a dozen songs of theirs. If, I, if I'm on the running machine in the gym, <laughs> you know, like uh, Jailbird and... Country Girl. Uh, uh, country, country Girl, what a song. That's, fine. That's like an anthem in Scotland, country girl. I mean, you if you go to um, if you go to uh, Kayleigh's and at the end, or not that we go to Kayleigh's every week, but you go to Kayleigh's and at the end they put on some uh, you know sort of, sort of stuff to get you going before the end. They put on country girl, this kind of anthem music. That's what makes it sad, actually, yeah. when you see an interview like that. Because I knew I was going to meet you, I looked at a couple of you know greatest hits, as it were, mm. from the past. So I kind of rewatched your Margaret Thatcher interview mm. from 1990, uh, which is still compelling. And you know your Tony Blair interview, mm. um, kind of looking back over his sort of premiership, and which he really did look rather like a sort of tormented sort of individual. Mm. What you look for is when the closing credits sort of go up, what's the immediate exchange that takes place when the microphone's sort of turned off or whatever and a really rather difficult conversation has sort of taken mm. place? Can you remember in any of those instances I've, I've sort of mentioned what the flavour, what the manner, what the mood of that exchange would be? Oh, on the Thatcher one, she went for me afterwards completely. What did she we say? She stood up that, you know, I have never been interrupted so much and, you know, I, you know, blah, blah, you know, that, that wasn't fair, whatever. And it was quite interesting because both Malcolm Rifkind and indeed Michael Forsyth were with her. 
And, I mean, I've talked a lot about this to Malcolm Rifkind afterwards. I mean, she was so ill-advised to use the we in Scotland line. She completely misunderstood what they were talking about. Malcolm talks about that. He says, we were saying to her, you know, you just have to be more empathetic about Scotland. She took that as literally to talk about we in Scotland as if she was actually Scottish. She didn't want me to do the interview because I was a woman and they tried to stop it. And the BBC was very firm about that. But... um, I think she kind of realised that she'd she'd never won Scotland and she kind of lost Scotland with that interview. Did you have a sense of that being the case at the time? I had the sense of that being because she didn't know the 1992 committee had talked and she was, of course, gone by the end of the year. That's right. What is this, the political cyanide pill Mm -hmm. comment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that was... So there was that. And then with Tony Blair, he was just kind of affable and left. Yeah, I sense that it probably would. I th- I felt like the source of his torment was not was not your presence in the room no. in that particular instance, no. but that was that was equally fascinating for that because mm-hmm. it was what he brought with him and what clearly weighed so heavily. heavily. And I think the thing is about these kind of interviews is you think so long and hard about them beforehand. You do a lot of homework. We work out the kind of line, right. what you know, what the approach would be. And so forth. Though, of course, once you're in it, you just have to go with it. Yeah. But, you know, we do a lot. We take them very, very seriously. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I, you know, God, it was a nerveless display from you. And um, I sort of almost wonder if being so young... Yeah, well, I maybe was you're 34. Braver when... um, yeah, I was looking a bit kind of new romantic as well. The, oh, God, the hair. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strong look. I think it's... <laughs> I think it's come I back. I love again. that. I'm going to use that. It's a strong look. It's come back again, Kirsty. <laughs> it has. It's come back again. I've, I've literally my 18 year old daughter, Dora. <laughs> if I showed her that look, she would. I just. That's. I, I think I went out like that last Friday. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so come back. Um, <laughs> I think I've tormented you long enough. Anyway, Kirsty, it's almost midday. Uh, so you've been. Well, it's been lovely to be tormented. Now. Thank you very much, Kirsty. We didn't get to ask you about your book. Um, Don't worry. Anyway, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. I didn't ask you about yours. It's fine. Um, Kirsty Walk, thank you for um, keeping me in excellent company for the last hour. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Needle Mythology podcast with myself, Pete Perfides. Flair Audio have helped us produce this and make it sound as lovely as it does, as indeed has our my wonderful producer, Laura Druce, who is also responsible for making it sound as brilliant as it does. And last but not least, of course, I'd also like to thank uh, Soho Radio for their generous use of the studio. Thanks for listening. Join me next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello, I'm John Holmes, and yes, the last thing you need is another podcast that takes apart a television show and hacks through it like a cough going through a pensioner. Except wait, because this is The The One Show show in which myself and my guests force ourselves to watch a week's worth of TV's The One Show and then analyse it all in far too much detail. It sounds like a terrible idea, and it is for us. But for you, it's entertainment gold that's all over a programme you yourself have no intention of ever watching. The The One Show show every Tuesday and Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.